Hey, thanks for checking out the Reveal Vineyard podcast. Here at Reveal, our mission is simple. Find God, find others, and find yourself. For more information, visit us online at revealvineyard.com. Well, we're starting uh, an old, new series today, uh, one that may sound familiar to many of you. Uh, we, for the past year and a half, maybe a little bit longer, we've been weaving in and out of the Gospel of John. I've told you that uh, John's Gospel simply means good news. And so when you hear the Gospel of John, it just means the good news of John. And what is John's good news? It's that God put on flesh and has come among us. He's redeeming mankind. Uh, we've called this series, Jesus, the Greatest Show on Earth. Because regardless of what you feel about Jesus or what you believe about Jesus, it would not be a stretch to say that he has been the most influential person in all of history. I mean, there have been some really influential people who have walked the planet, uh, but uh, men and women who have played an influential and an important role. But it wouldn't be a stretch to say that Jesus has had a far greater role throughout history than any other person in time. His influence is woven throughout culture, and civilizations have been built upon his teachings, governments built upon his wisdom, uh, hospitals and humanitarian aid and uh, food relief has been given in and through his name. And so regardless of what you feel about Jesus or believe about Jesus, it would not be a leap to say he has been the most influential person in all of history, thus our title, The Greatest Show on Earth. John wrote his gospel based upon his firsthand experience. Uh, which is interesting because not all of the gospel writers can say that. Uh, John and Matthew write their gospel, their good news, based upon what they experienced through uh, being one of the 12 disciples. Luke and Mark were not with Jesus, and so their gospel is written from interviews and things that they've gathered information on. But Matthew and John were firsthand observers, participants uh, in the ministry of Jesus. And so John writes out of that experience. Uh, The mood in John's gospel changes in John chapter 13. John 13 is known as the upper room discourse. Uh, It is the the place where the last supper occurred. Maybe you've heard about that. Place where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. It is known as the upper room discourse. Uh, It is uh, Jesus spending the time that he has left on earth with the 12 men who would be given the mission to go out and change the world and to bring the message of Jesus to the world. And it was a mission that they were unqualified for. Matter of fact, they were underqualified, undereducated, under-resourced, and Jesus knew it. And so he was spending his final moments on earth with the 12 that were given the mission to go out and to change the world. From here, what I want you to understand is that John's gospel uh, moves very quickly. The last chapter that we covered was John chapter 16, going back a while. And the reason we've taken such a long gap is because I've been waiting for Easter to roll back around so that we would study the last chapters of John during the Easter season. From here forward, John's gospel moves very quickly at a fast pace. Jesus is only hours away from his crucifixion. And John records the events based upon what he experienced firsthand. And then he wrote them down. Matter of fact, John tells us why he wrote these things down. In John 20, uh, John says this, But these things are written, in other words, I wrote these things down, that you might believe 
in the Christ that uh, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in him. John said, look, all these things I wrote down for this purpose, that those who would come after me would believe that Jesus is the Christ. So understand the timeline. Everything that we will study from here to Easter, it's John 17 through John 21, all of that takes place in a very short time span. Matter of fact, John 13, the upper room discourse, the Last Supper, to the time of crucifixion takes place in about less than a 12-hour span. So Last Supper, crucifixion, it moves quickly. And here we see Jesus spending his final hours with his disciples. The crowds have left him. The miracles are behind him. Uh, The healings, no more of that taking place at this point. Jesus is hours away from nails, biting skin, uh, uh, thorns, piercing flesh. And he's spending his time with his disciples. And we have things that we can learn from that. So let's go ahead and pray. Uh, Father, today as we study your word, would you uh, enlighten us and would you uh, speak life into us through your word? I pray that it would uh, spring forth in us a response We invite you, Holy Spirit, to speak to us through your timeless truth and have your way in us. Would you just make that your prayer? Ask God to teach you today. Father, I pray that we would have a response to the truth that you speak over us and impart to us today. And we invite you, Spirit of God, to do that which you desire among us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's look at John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, now since we're catching up, what are the words that he spoke? Well, starting in chapter 13, he washes the disciples' feet. He calls out Judas as being the one who would betray him, right? Judas during the Last Supper, he gets up and leaves. So there's 11 left at this point in John, 7, in John 17. Started with 12, there's 11 uh, left. Jesus tells Peter, very soon you're going to deny me. Peter's like, that'll never happen. Jesus says, you're going to deny me. Uh, he then drops one of his I am truths on him where he says that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And then he continues, and at the end of Uh, chapter 14, it tells us that they leave the upper room and they are making their way to the Garden of Gethsemane where eventually Jesus would be betrayed by Judas, betrayed with a kiss, uh, and where he would be arrested. Now I want to show you a little map here so you get an idea of what is taking place. It might be difficult for you to read if you're in the back, but uh, Jerusalem separated into an upper and lower city. The temple is in there in the upper right. Uh, That red dot on the lower part is where we believe the upper room was, where this discourse took place, the the Last Supper and the washing of the feet and the instructions that Jesus gave. And John 14, John says that we left the upper room and they're making their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now they would have left through that bottom gate, it was the Essene Gate. Uh, Most likely the only gate that was open at this time for security because we're looking between 11 and 1 a.m., all right? It's late into the evening. 
When you read the account of Jesus in the garden and he's praying and he comes back and all the disciples are sleeping and he's like, what's going on? It's because it's like 1 a.m., right? They're exhausted. So they're leaving through the gate of Essenes, one of the, probably the only gate that was open, and they begin their journey through the Kidron Valley and through the Mount of Olives and then you see the red dot up in the upper right is the garden. So they're on this path and the entire time that they're walking, Jesus is teaching them. Right? He's using every moment that he has in order to instruct his disciples on what is to come. And so picture Jesus with 11 guys crowded around him, and he's sharing things with them that he wants them to remember. And then in John 15, Jesus gives another I am statement. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. In other words, he's saying, you need to stay connected to me if you're going to make it through this. He then goes on to tell them about upcoming turmoil and conflict. He says that some in the world will hate you, but it's because they have hated me first. And what I find interesting is that Jesus had a lot to say, starting in John 13. It was a teaching moment, and he is just rapid fire shooting these things out. And then they're on a walk, and he's continuing to teach them. And somewhere between the room and the garden, something changes. Jesus stops teaching And then just suddenly, he starts praying. No warning, just bam, time to pray. And John's like, i got to write this down. And so John, you know, puts this in that we might believe. And so notice what he prays. He says, when Jesus had spoken these words, John says, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. And he said, Father, the hour has come. In other words, understand that none of the events that are about to happen catch Jesus off guard. He understood that his time was short. He, he understood that very soon he would be betrayed by one of his own. He, he knew that he stood in the shadow of the cross. For much of his ministry, he said the opposite. He told people, my time has not yet come. Matter of fact, he told some who received a miracle, he said, go and tell no one because my time's not yet come. In other words, I don't need all this getting out and people being stirred about me and coming after me because it's not yet my time. But Jesus understood something. He said, my hour has come. He goes on to say, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. And we know that Jesus was not looking forward to the events that were about to take place. In the garden, he's praying, and one of the things he said is, Father, if there's any other way that this could happen, then let this cup pass for me. In other words, if there's any other way that we can redeem mankind, I'm really not looking forward to what's about to happen. And then he says, but really, it's not about my will, but your will. And so this is it. Let's make it happen. We know that through, uh, in just a short time, we'll be praying in the garden. And the Bible tells us that under so much stress that these blood is coming through the skin, sweating blood. And what I find interesting is Jesus is moving toward his crucifixion, but notice the words. He's moving towards his crucifixion, but instead of saying he will be crucified, he really says, I will be glorified. I just I, I find that interesting, knowing what he's about to step into. Verse 2, he says, Since you have given him authority, speaking of himself, over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life. Remember, Jesus is praying for himself here to start with, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Then he goes on in verse 4, he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have given me to do. In other words, look, everything I've said, everything I've done, it's pointed to you. I've glorified you. I've completed everything you've asked me to do. Except for this one thing. Verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence 
with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, I stepped out of heaven and put on this earth suit, but I'm about to step out of this earth suit and retain, step into uh, my true divinity, right? I'm God. And he says, look, put upon me the glory that was with me before the foundations of the world. Paul speaks to the church of Philippi where he says, though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of of a servant. So Jesus is kind of saying, look, my time is short here, and he's praying, God, I'm coming home. We're getting the band back together. Bring the glory back, right? I'm stepping back into my, my divinity. And then in verse 6, something changes again. He goes from praying for himself, and in a selfless act, begins to pray for his disciples. Now, for the sake of time, we're going to jump to verse 9. He says, I am not praying, or I am praying for them, his disciples. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Now, this is not a diss on the rest of humanity, but Jesus is about to leave 11 behind that had to carry on the message, right, to uh, turn the world upside down with the truth of this good news message, the gospel. And Jesus knows that their mission is difficult, so he's praying for them. Verse 10. All mine are yours, he says, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them, meaning my, my presence. They have accepted me as the Messiah. Verse 11, and I am no longer in the world. Now, technically, Jesus was still in the world. Right? He's hours away from his crucifixion, uh, you know, somewhere maybe nine hours if we're talking midnight around this time. It's put on the cross somewhere around 9 a.m. And then he's six hours on the cross before he dies, so he's still in the world, but have you ever noticed that when you give your notice or when you only got a month left of school that you kind of get short-timers disease? And I wonder if that's maybe what Jesus is like. It's like in his mind, I'm already gone. And he's like, look, I'm not in the world even though he's really still there. He says, but then he goes on to say, but they are in the world. And just notice the compassion of Jesus. In other words, saying, look, I'm leaving this place. The sin and the sickness of heart and the hatred and the false idol worship and the abuse and the deception. And I'm about to die that we can make all that right one day, right? When, when he returns, the kingdom of God will be established completely. And all of the sin, all of the heartache, all of the disease, all of that will be done away with. But Jesus says, but for now, I'm leaving, but my boys are staying behind. And so he's praying for them. He goes on to say, And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me. Now, Holy Father is an interesting word choice. God is often called uh, the Holy One, but this expression of Holy Father is the only time that we see it in Scripture. And it beautifully captures the idea of God's purity and his tenderness as Father God. And so he, never do we see this idea of calling him Holy Father. And then he goes on to reveal the purpose of his prayers. Now this is important. He says, here's why I'm praying and what I'm praying for. That they may be one even as we are one. Right? So, so he says, Here, here's my point. The goal of you keeping them is that they may remain in unity. Now we're going to come back, circle back to this idea, but we'll continue for now. Verse 12, he says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. 
I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, which is Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, here's his second reason for praying, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves, in them, right? What is Jesus praying for? He's like, I'm praying for these guys that they would remain in unity, and I'm praying that joy would take up residence in them. Verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now, I have never promoted Christians being overbearing and pompous and turning people off to the truth of the gospel. Never. Uh, But on the other side, if no one is ever offended by your faith, it may be because we might not be living out our faith. Because Jesus says, look, the world, there will be some who will reject you, but they have first rejected me. Just maybe, you know, something to ponder. And Jesus is letting them know that ultimately, if you're my follower, you are a citizen of the kingdom, not a citizen of this world. And so he continues to pray. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. I remember the disciples are hearing this. They couldn't have been happy about that part. I do not ask that you take them out of this world, but that you keep them From the evil one. Why is he praying for the disciples? For unity, that joy may be in them, and for protection, right? To to keep the evil one away. He goes on. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Then, fourth thing, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So he's praying, and here's the purpose of his prayer. That his disciples would remain in unity, that they would have joy even when circumstances overwhelm them, that, that they would be protected to be kept safe from the evil one, that their faith would stand even under pressure. And now he prays that they would be sanctified. The idea that they would be marked and set apart, marked for a special purpose. So he's praying that God sanctify these 11 through the truth of your word. In other words, set them apart, call them out. He's praying that they would be equipped with divine illumination and power and courage and joy and love and inspiration because of their activity that lies ahead of them, the mission that lies ahead of them. Now, look at verse 18. He says, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified with truth. Now, I want you to imagine being one of the 11 that are left with Jesus. And you've been with him since the upper room and the Last Supper, and you saw Judas take off, and you're like, what's up with that, right? And, and, and then the washing of the feet and all this, and you're with him on, on the journey up, up into the garden, and, and you're walking with him, and all of a sudden he stops and he begins to pray. And then you realize midway through his prayer that he's not praying for himself, but he's praying for you. I want you to think how awesome that would be, that he's presenting to the Father spiritual needs that his disciples may not even be aware of. And, and he prays for protection against dangers that, that they're not even conscious of, and praying that their faith may not cease and that they may be victorious in the end. How humbling would it be to be with Jesus, and suddenly he just breaks into prayer, and then you realize, he's praying for me. I mean, let's put it another way. How great would it be To have Jesus pray for you right now. Now look, there are a lot of people 
that I would like to have pray for me, Jesus is top of the list. I mean, there's a lot of people that I know can pray really well, but I don't think anyone prays like Jesus, right? And have you ever had a season of life when you didn't even know how to pray? How great would it be for Jesus to say, I got this. I'm going to pray for you. I mean, it'd be incredible, right? If you had a season when you didn't know how to pray, when circumstances were so overwhelming that you can't even fit a prayer together in words. Talk to someone about first service who's like, they said, it's been such a rough season, I don't even know what to pray anymore. There have been seasons in my life that has been so overwhelming that all I pray is, come on, God. That's all I can get out because I, I, don't, I don't even know how to put into words what I'm feeling and, and, and all that is surrounding me. And all I keep saying is, come on, God. Come on, God. And i got to believe that he understands. He can put some more meaning to those things. But I'm like, God, you got to do something. Come on, God. You know, when life is hard and you're losing hope, how would you like Jesus to pray that your faith would remain? When you're tempted, what would it be like to have Jesus praying that your faith stands the temptation? Praying for your protection. Praying that you would be sanctified and set apart. What would it be like to have Jesus praying for you? Well, here's the good news. He is. Because look at how it continues in verse 20. Praise for himself, praise for his disciples, and he shifts again where he says, I do not ask for these only. Listen, I'm just not praying for these 11, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. What he's saying is everything Jesus just prayed for unity and for joy and for protection and for sanctification is not just for the 11 now, but for every person moving forward throughout history who will come to believe in me through their testimony. I am praying for them them. Just nudge your neighbor and say, that's you. Jesus is praying for you. Now we're going to circle back to that because you need to catch it. Uh, Robert Murray McShane uh, is, uh, I believe, a Scottish pastor way back. And he said this quote, I got to read you. He said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. And he goes on to say, yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. And I come back. Verse 21. Right? So I just don't pray for them. I'm praying for all of them. For all that I've already prayed and as I continue, that they will all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. You see a pattern of unity matters. Right? Now he goes on to say, and here's why unity matters. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Something happens when the world sees people inside of the church that can disagree but still love one another. Something happens when those outside of the church see those inside of the church who can debate but still respectfully discuss. Something happens when they see those inside of the church who can disagree but believe and understand that what unites us outweighs that which separates us. Jesus says, look, my church has to be united. Hey, we failed in this. The global church throughout the ages, right? We failed in this. I've warned you before, be careful when you're talking about his church. 
not just this church, as a whole, right? It's too important to him. It carries too strong of a message, right? And so he says, the church united because something will happen. They'll believe that you sent me. And notice what he does not pray for. And he prays for unity, but he doesn't pray that you will win the argument. He doesn't pray that I, that, that, that I prove my point. He doesn't pray that I sway someone over to my side of the Facebook discussion. He doesn't pray uh, that, that uh, my political preference steps on someone else's preference. He doesn't pray for any of that. What he prays for is something that is far more important. And that's unity among those who live under the banner of Christ Jesus. He says it's that important. And so he goes on saying, I'm praying for everyone, for all that I've already prayed, and for unity. He goes on, verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that uh, they may be one, even as we are one. In other words, he's saying not just the revelation and knowledge of God, but actual the presence of God. Verse 23. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. In other words, he's saying, man, I want these guys to be with me in heaven. Right? He says, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. He's not praying that they would be with me because they'd be like, Jesus, we're right here, man. He's like, man, I want these guys with me in heaven. In other words, he's kind of saying, how long do they have to remain on earth? The older I get, I'll be 30 next month. The older, the older I get, uh, the more I look forward to an eternity with Jesus. And I'm reading this this week and I thought, how crazy is it to be on the other end of this that Jesus is like, I'm waiting to see you too. I'm not, not, not the same, you know, but, but, that, but he's like, I've been waiting for you. What is it like for Jesus saying, I've been waiting for you to get up here. That I, I, I've, I've wanted you to see me face to face. That we would spend eternity moving forward. It's just one of those things that's like, Jesus is pretty incredible. Verse 25. Oh righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. Uh, and uh, these know these that you have sent me. I may know to them your name and will continue to make it known. That the love which you have uh, loved me may be in them and I in them. Now, I want us to circle back around on something profound, I hope. This life-changing truth that right now, at this moment, Jesus is praying for you. Look at Romans 8.34. It says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. And they're like, no, 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 scratch that. Uh, here's even more than that, the one who raised Right? Because, you know, everything hinges on him not staying in the grave. He's saying, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding, praying for us at this moment at the right hand of God. Look at Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, the author says, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Love this last part. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. That he is existing at this moment, always lives, interceding for those who call upon his name. 
right now, as it was yesterday, as it will be tomorrow, Jesus is praying for you. Now, just in your spirit, just ask that God would kind of bring life to these words because it is a life-changing truth. He's praying for our, our, our unity. Not uniformity. We don't all have to agree on everything. We can have differing opinions on politics and education or immigration or all those things. But listen, we realize that there's something that sticks us together far greater than our differences, and that's Jesus, and that's the purpose of the church. Hey, you don't have to agree with me on everything. I don't have to agree with you on everything. I'm I'm mature enough to look you in the eyes and say, we disagree, let's go do church together. I have no issue with that. Jesus praying for our unity, and I've experienced that with some of you, and it encourages me every time when we disagree and we just continue working for the kingdom. That's the way it, 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 it should be. He's praying for unity. And at this moment, he's praying for your joy. At this moment. That he sees your struggle and understands the pain and he knows the frustration and he knows when the world is overwhelming and when there seems to be no way out and he knows when faith is a word in word only. When everything inside of you is screaming for release. In heaven, right now, at the right hand of God, Jesus prays for you. I don't know what that does for you, but all week I was like, that's pretty awesome. That Jesus is praying for you to be unified with his body. And he's praying that regardless of what is happening, that joy could overcome your circumstances. That's pretty awesome. If I could hear Christ praying in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference He is praying for me. See, Jesus did not go to heaven after his earthly ministry to take a break from his role as eternal shepherd. Right? It's not like he was down here and and, and he was shepherd and now he's up there. He's like, good luck. He is still our shepherd. Eternally caring for those who are are his. And and I love that, that he exists eternally. That right now he's praying for us. He prays for unity. He prays for joy that surpasses circumstances, right? A supernatural delight in God and the purpose of God. He prays for your protection from evil to stand strong in temptation. And he prays for your sanctification. He's praying that we would be set apart, that we would be called out as citizens, not of this world, but as citizens of his kingdom of heaven. He's praying that we would be equipped with divine illumination and power and courage and joy and love and inspiration for our mission or the story that he has before us. He's praying that we would be sanctified, set apart by truth. The purification of one's heart and one's intentions and motives. Now, I want that just to rest upon you. Jesus is praying for you. I want that to encourage you. I want you to think about that. The next time you're going to maybe engage in an activity that maybe you shouldn't engage in, in the back of your mind it's like, Jesus is praying that I overcome this temptation. And the next time that, that your, your joy has got up and, and, and went, and you're like, Jesus is praying 
that his joy would be manifested in me. Let me shift gears with you, thinking about this idea of sanctification. Wednesday marked uh, what is known as the season of Lent. Uh, It's a religious practice, been around since the 4th century, uh, and nowadays many Protestant churches do not observe uh, Lent. Uh, We never have, but uh, the last couple years I've been kind of thinking about uh, its purpose and how it might be useful for us leading into uh, the Easter season. Lent simply means spring. Spring is a time of a new life and of new beginnings, and uh, Lent is a season of embracing and preparing for life, life that we find uh, when we encounter Jesus. And really at its core, Lent is about making space for God. It's a time of removing those things that distract us from God. It's a time of self-examination. It's a time of quiet contemplation. Lent is 40 days before Easter. Actually, it's more, but we don't count Sundays. But it's 40 days uh, before Easter, and it begins with Ash Wednesday, which occurred just last Wednesday. Now, some of you, I know, went to an Ash Wednesday service. Uh, It is uh, ashes are made of palm leaves that were from the prior year's Palm Sunday celebration. The ashes are, are mixed together. And there is a sign of the cross which is placed upon the forehead of believers. And uh, it is a symbol uh, of our mortality and our need for repentance and our need for a Savior. Uh, Lent really is a journey that should lead us to the cross and ultimately to an empty tomb because that is what life is, right? It should be a season that prepares us for a resurrection celebration. Now we prepare ourselves for Christmas for at least a month, if not longer, right? And we get all worked up and we're all excited about it and and, and yet Easter rolls around and we just kind of fall into it. Saturday, it's like, hey, Easter's tomorrow. And the idea of Lent was to kind of prepare for this idea. Now understand, Lent is not a sacrament. We're not commanded to do it. It's not like uh, communion or baptism. But there are many things that we partake of, including an Easter celebration that you won't find in Scripture. Uh, and it doesn't mean that they're not valuable to us. And so Lent is uh, really just kind of a journey to the cross. The journey of Lent reminds us who we belong to. In a world that is distracted and distracting, Lent calls us away from the noise and to a place of solitude with God, a, a time to seriously reflect on the words of Jesus to seek first his kingdom. Prepare yourself for life that comes from an empty tomb. And I think there's value in it. Now, I think that we have kind of taken Lent and we've just made it into some ritual that often gets lost on the masses. But understand that there is something valuable in us preparing ourselves for Easter and inviting God to prepare us for that celebration. You may have heard it said when people ask, hey, uh, what did you give up? For Lent. And that is because Lent is often associated with self-denial and prayer and repentance. And so uh, there are those that uh, would give something up uh, in preparation for Easter. Now, Paul tells us to work out our salvation. He writes that in Philippians. And when he says work out our salvation, he's not talking about uh, that we might lose our salvation. You know, you've got to be afraid that you're going to lose it at any moment. That's not what he's talking about. There's actually 
three salvations if we look at it. There is, I, I was saved, meaning my first salvation is I was saved uh, at 14, going into my freshman year of high school. Salvation. I was saved. And I am now in the process of being saved. Right? That's the sanctification part where God is at work in me. He's transforming me. I am being saved as of now. All of you are in the process of being saved, being manipulated, being crafted, being formed into what he wants us to be. That's salvation, sanctification, and then I will one day be saved completely. Right? That's glorification. And so what Paul speaks of is that from the time of coming to Christ to the time that you die, there's a long period of time in there. Work out your salvation. In other words, allow God to work in you and to craft you into the person you should be. Transformation should be taking place. And Lent can be a valuable tool for God to use in that sanctifying process. Because Lent asks the question, are there areas in life where Jesus is not present or prominent? And you can ask yourself that. Let me have the band come up. You can ask yourself that. Is there an area in your life where Jesus is not present or prominent? And what is keeping you from opening that area of your life to him completely? And so often we will give something up for Lent in a way of removing a distraction that stands between us and God. You understand? Now sometimes what we give up is pretty simple. It's just a sin issue. And maybe right now you're thinking God's just kind of laying upon you like, hey, this, it has to go. Now, where we've ruined this is, you know, being human. The church has said, all right, I'm going to give something up on Ash Wednesday leading through Easter. And so Tuesday is Fat Tuesday. We're going to get hammered drunk because Wednesday I got to give it all up. See, that's, that's wrong. We've blown that, right? The idea is to prepare ourselves. So the idea isn't that I'm going to give up the sin for 40 plus days, but as soon as Easter's done, baby, I'm back at it. It may be a sin that today God puts his finger upon you and says, hey, this has to go forever. But it also may be something that you give up that is competing with God right now, for example. Maybe God says to you, hey, Facebook, man, it is competing right now. Maybe it is something else. You know, maybe it's a hobby. Hey, it could be the gym. I don't know. Maybe it's something else in your life. Maybe it's a food where you say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give that up. And here's the idea. Please listen. The idea isn't just to give something up to say, hey, I'm participating in Lent. The idea is to give something up. And when you would normally be participating in that event, you're participating in a spiritual activity. And so whenever you would be on Facebook, you're like, oh, I'm not doing Facebook. I'm going to read the Bible. And whenever you would be on Facebook, you're like, I'm going to spend it as a time of prayer or meditation or service or, or, or normally when and so I'm giving up dessert instead of eating dessert, I'm going to pray. You're replacing something with a spiritual activity that prepares you for Easter. Do you understand? Now maybe, maybe God speaks to you today about you participating in the Lenten season. What does it look like for you today? How may God be speaking to you? What does it look like to remove something that stands between you and God right now? So as we close today, I'd like to bless you in your pursuit of the things of God leading into Easter. 
And I'd like you to consider how God might want you to spend the next 40 plus days focusing on a pursuit with your creator to prepare yourself for the resurrection. Maybe it's a sin issue you repent of. Maybe it's something you're going to give up for this season. It's not sin. You're just giving it up because it's competing with God. And you say, I'm just going to push that aside. So band's going to lead us in a couple songs. And I would encourage you to just spend some time. Don't do this flippantly. Don't just rush into it because you think God's going to be like, I'm so proud of you. Just don't rush into it. But weigh it out. How might you prepare for Easter this year? Now, if you decide to do that, I'm going to be on this side. Morgan's going to be over here. And we would like to bless you. And we're not going to use ashes, but I'd like to bless you with oil. Oil, traditionally, throughout Scripture, it symbolizes uh, healing and um, uh, cleansing to being set apart and blessing. And so I would just like to bless you in your pursuit of life during the Lenten season. I'd like to speak over you that I bless you in your pursuit and make a sign of the cross symbolizing Jesus who gave his life for your sins and to remind you to whom you belong. Look, if you decide to step into Lent, fantastic. If you decide it's not for me, I don't understand it, that's okay too. It's not a sin issue. But I do encourage you to prepare your heart leading into Easter. And so Lord, speak to us right now. Speak over us the powerful truth that you are praying for us, praying for our unity and praying for joy over us and praying for our protection and praying for our sanctification. Would you speak to us what it looks like for us to participate in Lent? Not out of ritual, not out of obligation or duty, but as a time to prepare our, our hearts to reflect upon the resurrection that gives life to all who would seek you. The ash used to welcome Lent, a word meaning spring, new life, new growth. Traditionally, the burnt palm fronds from last year's Palm Sunday mixed with holy water or oil. That's right, last year's praises and hosannas and holy offerings now burnt and ash anointed on our heads. Our symbol of death must become life. Our symbol of lifelong winter must become spring. Every resurrection needs a death. What do we give up? To what do we take hold? In this sacred thought, we become one. We are bound in our worship and holiness. We are bound in our praises and offerings. We are one. As Christ and the Father are one, we take up our cross, ourselves, and we take hold of one another. New life, new growth. Lord, we come to you today and we surrender. And there is a beauty in surrender. There is a beauty in saying it's not about me anymore. And I'm surrendering myself to you. Would you make that your prayer today?
Holy Spirit, would you wrap around someone who needs to hear these words that Jesus is praying for you? Would you surround them when they are at their lowest? And it may be at this moment when they're screaming out for help, I remind you and I speak words of truth over you that Jesus intercedes for you. Would it encourage us and move us and would it begin to transform us? Would we step into this season to begin to prepare ourselves for the life that we find at an empty tomb? For the resurrection was not just about life to you, it was about you giving life to us allowing us to overcome the death of our sins. I bless you today, church, in your pursuit of Jesus. I bless you in your pursuit of his life abundant. I bless you in your surrender. I bless you in your repentance. I bless you to find more of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you are a guest, uh, I'd love to meet you, or if you'd like prayer, we would love to pray for you. I hope you enjoyed the service. I hope you sensed the presence of God. Hey, spend the next several weeks preparing yourself. God will do something in you as you position yourself to meet with him. God bless you. I hope to see you next week.